You're listening to Build for Impact, brought to you by MarketScale, with your host, Daniel Heward. Good day, everyone. This is Daniel Heward, your host for Build for Impact. And today I am joined by a dear friend and colleague who I have had the opportunity to collaborate with uh, in the development of the Lead Green Building Rating System, Mick Schwedler. And uh, Mick has been active in the development, training, and support of energy efficiency uh, systems and rating systems since 1982. Um, Mick was the chair of our lead technical committee when I served on that committee with Mick, uh, and, and I also served um, on the uh, technical advisory committee for water efficiency. Uh, Mick's got a great background in the contributions to um, green building, uh, rating systems, and a whole bunch of other stuff. He's been uh, a big participant on several committees with, with ASHRAE, with LEED, uh, and with other stuff in, in his, his daily business while he's not contributing to the movement uh, of green building rating systems globally forward. He's a uh, senior applications engineer with TRAIN, um, doing super awesome uh, HVAC product and air quality product. Mick, welcome. Thank you very much, Daniel. It's good to be here. Mick, it's it's really great to hear your voice because, you know, we used to have that dialogue every two weeks. And, uh, you know, as, as time goes by and we, you know, reach the end of the terms and we do succession planning and get other people in place, uh, you know, we, we can sometimes lose track. And I'm really happy that you and I get to dialogue once in a blue moon. Um, and, and I'm really thrilled uh, at, uh, you know, the, the stuff that we've managed to accomplish together. Um, in that, I'm going to jump into sharing with our audience the four build, four pillars that, uh, you know, that I established when we set up this Build for Impact. And those include sustainability, resiliency, material transparency, and, uh, and wellness. So, uh, you know, obviously, Mick, with your, your background going back to 82, um, you know, you were there at the at the inception of incorporating sustainability into businesses, as as I was in in another country in Canada at that point in time, um, really early in my career as well. Uh, give us, you know, some of your thoughts on s- sustainability, and you know, uh, even a timeline, whatever whatever you like to share on it, Mick. Sure. Thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, from a sustainability standpoint, I think the change has been uh, initially sustainability only meant energy. And people were looking at uh, what happened from an energy standpoint. And then it broadened to um, other factors, water usage, uh, building materials, etc. And when that started to happen, uh, initially, I would say there, there were some buzzwords used. Sustainability became a buzzword. Everybody wanted to be sustainable. But a lot of people didn't really define what that meant. But they knew they had to, had to say they were doing it. I would, one of the major changes over the last, I think, five to seven years really has been people attempting to do the right things and then getting uh, feedback from that and if you will if it's a corporate business profit margin from that I referred to the triple bottom line and I think people are really starting to think about how can we do more with less less materials less energy less impact and that's as we've seen in in 
working with USGBC and LEED, we've seen sustainability actually become more actually sustainable. Yeah, I, I like that, you know, that perspective on it, Mick. Uh, and, you know, I think that there's, you know, we, we all try to do stuff and have an influence. And, you know, for our audience, uh, you may not know, but uh, Mick has actually educated and shared um, information uh, you know, on green building to over 30,000 people um, when he was uh, a presenter and host of um, the engineers uh, newsletter live broadcasts, uh, you know, so that there's been a lot of genealogy in, in work that uh, Mick is, you know, super humble and, you know, amazingly knowledgeable and a huge contributor to, you know, uh, ASHRAE, the American Society of uh, Heating, Refrigeration and uh, air conditioning engineers, um, in, in, and also within lead serving, you know, multiple roles like me as a serial volunteer. Uh, and you know, it's, it's really commendable. I really like uh, how you shared Mick on the, the transition from sustainability being a very narrow focus to being a very wide focus. And, you know, it, it's interesting because now, uh, you know, the term resiliency, um, you know, we we thought about it, but we didn't formalize it. And now that it's been formalized, we realize that that's that's integral. And and I'm cons- I'm curious about you know a lot of the work that you've done um, has has sort of expanded people's horizons uh, on what you know sustainability needs to include, and and also what resiliency needs to include. Can you share some of that with our audience, Mick? Please. Sure, Daniel. I, I think. So. Resilience started and resiliency started in, in the same kind of range. That is, people knew they had to say they were doing it, but again, it wasn't defined very well, as you said. In fact, uh, the President Sheila Hader, when she was the president of ASHRAE a couple of years ago, really took the mantle on to make sure that things were more resilient. And her concentration was the, the, the electric grid. I mean, in the North American, in the United States, it's over 100 years old. It's antiquated. And yet we still try to use it. But if portions go down, we're in trouble, uh, in huge trouble. So how do we not only maintain things, but how do we make them more resilient? That is, how can they respond to changes? Whether it's a it's a disaster, uh, it's an explosion like, like like the folks in Lebanon are dealing with. How do, how do we make them more resilient and able to bounce back? In addition, how do we start to design the buildings and the systems to do that? When the hurricane went through up through New York State, and they had more rain than they'd seen in a long long time. The basements got flooded, and where is that beautiful HVAC equipment that I like to see? Well, it's in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> and when it's in the basement, it gets flooded, and they have electrical shorts. So we start to think about where should we put the equipment? How do we make it so that it can respond and avoid issues that can be caused either by uh, human impacts or by natural disasters? I really like how you talked about, uh, you know, the HVAC system and where should it be ideally placed and, you know, forever and ever people place them in basements. Uh, but then when we see how, you know, if you've got a 30 story building, the, uh, the ideal placement for that is, you know, potentially on the roof or, or on the 15th story 
so that you, you know, you've got, uh, you know, a, an equal distance above and below and you can seek some equilibrium. So it was really interesting that you, you shared that, uh, as a highlight for, for people. Um, you know, your, your thoughts on, on, uh, on, on something like that as a, as a design sort of inspiration. Uh, thank you. In addition, it, when things are placed up on the roof, we have to also be concerned about high wind loads. And that's why, for example, the state of Florida has adopted some new standards with respect to equipment on the roof has to be able to withstand particular wind loads, uh, for example, when the hurricanes go through. So not only are people trying to do things the right way and making them be able to respond, but the design and the application of the equipment and the systems is uh, is being looked at more and more often. Yeah, I, I completely concur. And, you know, I, I was uh, a member of Snowbo here in Southern Nevada, um, you know, for many code cycles, looking at the review of stuff. And, you know, it was interesting because the life safety guys are all wanting to have a helipad on the roof. And, you know, the, the designers that just wanted to put, uh, you know, uh, air units on the roof wanted to use all that space for air units and, and, uh, you know, and in basically install a parapet around it, but then also have to have it strapped down so it didn't blow away in wind loads. Um, you know, so there's a didactic there in, in design, uh, that, that you face in, and really, um, where's the best place for it? you know, without making too many compromises. Exactly. And in fact, if we broaden it a little bit more and go back to the discussion we had on sustainability, where do we want the photovoltaic panels to be? The same roof. Roof has become valuable space. And so the design team working with the building owner really needs to have discussions early in the phase of projects so that all of the different parameters can be considered and the best decision for this particular application can be made. Yeah, you know, you just made me think of another thing. I'm always like a monster advocate for solar thermal in almost every project that, that I've, you know, worked on, consulted on. And, you know, the ideal place for solar thermal is on the roof. Um, and, and, you know, like you said, that's become very valuable real estate. You know, so not only are we doing, uh, you know, highly re reflective uh, surfaces on the roof to reduce the radiant energy into the building, we're looking at other potential uses there in, in where, you know, where those, uh, you know, those greater benefit discussions go on, right? That's exactly correct. Uh, and when you get back to the helipad, if we put a helipad next to the air handling equipment and the fumes come <laughs> into the building, that's not very good for people's wellness now, is it? No, no. And, you know, you're seeing fans get bent and destroyed because of the thrust from the helicopter and, and you know, introduction of dust, plugging up filters all of a sudden, and all kinds of other, you know, monstrous issues uh, that, that can be faced from that. So, you know, obviously life safety, we have to be concerned about. Uh, but, you know, where where do you ideally place these things is is one of those, those great questions. And I think, you know, um, this whole thought of consideration reminds me of a discussion uh, recently that we had with uh, Eric Corey Freed, who, who we both know and have collaborated with, um, who, who basically added that, you know, equity needs to be one of the other considerations that we have within resiliency. And and I think that the whole thrust around some of that dialogue and discussion uh, includes making sure that we're considerate. You know, your thoughts, Mick? 
people need to be respected no matter what. And I, I think sometimes we, we are so amazed at some of the atrocities that occur that we forget that they don't have to occur. And when we have the respect, when we allow the communications, when we uh, are open to listening, when, when we study things, um, that's when things become equitable because everybody is a person. Everybody is the same. Uh, we, we all have our differences. We, we were born in different places. We were raised with different cultures uh, and we have different experiences. And yet we all we, we all bring a different value and that different perspective. And uh, for example, within ASHRAE, we are working really hard not to just push the, push the easy button of saying, well, yes, we agree that these things shouldn't happen, but um, examining what do we want to change rather than just saying we want to go along with things. Now, I can't give you any answers, so please don't ask about them because we're not, <laughs> we're not at the end of that yet. But we, we have an entire task force from made up of people from around the world because it's not just in North America. It's where do we as a culture, where do we as people make sure that everybody has the chances, everybody has the opportunities, and everybody's valued and respected? Mick, you said that so eloquently, you know, the, the whole, the whole, uh, uh, basically framing it, you know, from the, the, the initial, um, statement that, you know, everybody needs to be respected and, uh, we have to look and seek out and appreciate, you know, those differences in opinions. Um, Mick, you know, I'm going to do a, a shameless plug for Global Green Tag. We developed this modern slavery transparency declaration. And, and the purpose behind it was to help agencies, individuals, companies, product manufacturers get compliant with some of the movement globally around, uh, you know, modern slavery, transparency, equity and, and, and stuff. I'm going to make sure to get you uh, a, a copy of it because it's just gone public. I very much appreciate and, that. You Thank know, you. Yeah. And, and make sure to feel share, feel welcome to share that with, with colleagues and let them know to, to reach back out to me on it. Um, so that, uh, you know, I can answer any questions I may be able to on it. Um, but it's a, it's a really interesting, uh, framework that starts to frame all of those things we might be less, um, uh, aware of in, in the world of equity. Um, and, and I think one of the things, uh, my next pillar is material transparency and that, you know, the inclusion of material transparency within lead. I think really started to open our eyes and broaden our horizons. And I, I know you, you've been involved with all of those discussions. What your thoughts on, on material transparency, you know, the initiation of it, where we've got to, where we're going, uh, any thoughts you have on it, Mick? Well, my first thought is I very much appreciated the people who really knew what they were talking about because this, this was, was not my strong suit. And what I, loved hearing were the impacts of the materials and not only the materials themselves, but how are they manufactured? How are they brought up? My wife and I and our family are looking at how do we reduce some of the, the nitrites and nitrates in our foods that are around. So 
when I was growing up in the 1950s and 60s, you just bought stuff that you needed or you, you, you took it out of the garden or whatever it happened to be. And having the, the clarity and having the, the transparency, the ingredients available, whether it's a food product or whether it's a building product is, is a good thing because it allows people to have the information and have the knowledge to make choices that are best for them and best for others. I, I love the the the, the uh, comparison or the uh, parallel you mentioned to gardening, uh, which which I'm a huge fan of. You know, I can't get enough green stuff around me. So I, I never have a, a lack of biophilic uh, influence in my life as a result. Um, and, and then you, you mentioned food labels and, you know, it's really interesting. I don't know if you know, uh, the Green Bronx machine, a, a close friend of mine, uh, you know, Steve Ritz started it. And, and what they do there is basically in one of the poorest congressional districts in the country, uh, set up, you know, children as part of their learning experience growing and then, uh, you know, preparing and some culinary skills and, and, and some of that stuff. And then taking the students outdoors and, and doing outdoor gardens and basically ga- giving them skills uh, for use in real life. And, and I'm really happy that you reference gardening because, it, you know, up until this point, I don't think we talked about it enough on Build for Impact and, and how critical, um, you know, our sustainability efforts are if we garden and in our resiliency efforts are if we guard and i would just say particularly this year with all the changes we've had uh we see many more people gardening uh making their own food through the, the through, through the help of nature and the, the the blessings that god sends us and making sure that they have food because they don't have to go to, out to any stores when they are f- making their own uh their community gardens they're, they're There have been those for many years, but it seems there's more interest in them. And the other part I really have liked about what we've seen is we see families out walking in the evening together as a family. And when we really talk about health, that's that's how much healthier can you get than the families together and then being active together. Yeah, it's such a great point that you bring up. You, You made me think of Danielle Horton, our colleague. Um, in in the San Diego area and you know within her firm they started to do gardening and they got so successful that they were actually giving away they're giving away plants uh you know you know vegetable plants and and uh and stuff you know to people in the community who would like them you know to aid assist and make other people aware you know in and I think it's that interaction that we can have with benefiting, you know, society, uh, the environment, uh, you know, that, that connection. Um, and, and you, you brought forward that whole idea, bring your family out and, and see what you can do and accomplish. Um, you know, get more connection, uh, with the family instead of just, you know, sitting on a sofa as mm-hmm. it were. Yep. And it, it was forced on us, but it, it's turning out, uh, we're, we're finding ways to take, the, the challenges and the, the bad things that were thrown at us and 
find good from them and hopefully people will keep those improvements moving forward as we have with the other improvements we've talked about today. Yeah. And, you know, this this wasn't a, a setup, you know, it's just a natural conversation. But our next pillar is wellness. And, you know, we've already started the touchdown on wellness. Um, you know, I, I was uh, uh, pleased to be a member of the IWI uh, International Wellbuilding Institute's uh, task force on COVID and other pandemics. And I know you and your colleagues are working deeply on that one as well um, with trying to gain guidance and best practices for people to use, you know, globally. Uh, so that's one portion of wellness. Your your thoughts on our our ability to transition from only doing sustainability into the, the you know, the big idea of adding to the wellness, uh, you know, depth of information and ability to contribute. It is right right it's it's the exact direction we need to go um a year ago in june uh, the the ashray board of directors uh, after going through our strategic plan um changed our vision and our vision is now a healthy and sustainable built environment for all and particularly with what the world population is going through with a pandemic, uh, the, the timing couldn't have been better to actually change our vision from something that was like a paragraph long to something that's focused on people, that's focused on the health, that's focused on the wellness, if you will. And um, ASHRAE is often seen as being slow and I would say in the past, some things have gotten in the way to keep us from moving as quickly as we'd like. But when we uh, put together in March of this year, an epidemic task force and 125 original volunteers have put out so much information about how to be well with what's going on with the viruses around us right now and what we can do. Um, the, the hope and prayer is that we will get to the point where we're not just responding to a virus or a disease, but rather that's becoming mainstream and, and part of what we do every day and that people who are going into the that built environment expect and should have. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, we're we're in uh, the, the dialogue about wellness and one of the things that, that you know, that I do, that, that you know, uh, you know, being an actual commissioning practitioner and building envelope commissioning practitioner, um, you know, your thoughts on the importance of doing that stuff, especially now that we have this need to address wellness in a bigger way. Well, a design can be perfect. A contractor can install it perfectly. It can operate either well by being commissioned and making sure it's all acting the way it's supposed to act, that the controls are installed and the algorithms are, are put in properly, or it can just be a bunch of pieces that might work together but probably won't. So that commissioning step is something that in the past really wasn't thought of and it, it wasn't done. And then building owners would be disappointed and certainly the occupants would would be disappointed and that disappointment means we don't get enough ventilation we don't uh, filter or clean the air properly so the commissioning is certainly a huge aspect of making sure that what is designed and installed uh, reaches the intent 
of what it was uh, bought in order to do. Yeah, and you know, I really like the fact that you know we've seen numerous studies that that weigh out the benefits of commissioning, and we've got so much evidence and proof that it's such a valuable investment. So that not only do you you get what you're supposed to out of your basis of design and your systems, um, you know, people are healthier as a result. Your operational costs fall down and your operations are much more predictable as a result afterwards. And not only the original commissioning, but the recommissioning or continuous commissioning that can take place by when the control systems are being operated properly and, and gathering and trending that data. Yeah, yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. You know, the, the the fact now that we have such easy access to this data and we're able to trend it and, and map it and look at it and compare it to what we want ideally, and then even go back and survey the occupants to make sure that, that they're happy with what we've got and then learn from that, from that end user in that 360 review, I think that's crucial for us, you know, looking at our all the way back to the initial pillar and sustainability, but moving forward touching down on each one of them on the way to, to eventually get to, uh, you know, a sustained effort for wellness. Uh, Daniel, you're singing to the choir, uh, Ashray president <laughs> this year, uh, Chuck Gulledge. His theme is uh, Industry 4.0, the digital lighthouse. We lose 95% of the data before we even start. It's, it's like being on the dark web. We have dark data. Without the data, we can't have information or knowledge. And he has really issued a call to action to ASHRAE members. And we are working with a lot of other associations outside of ASHRAE to make sure that we are collecting that data. We are using the data to get rid of the waste, to provide the value, to make things more productive from a business standpoint for the building owners and the construction folks, that's saving money. But from the occupant standpoint, that's delivering value, delivering what the system and building are supposed to. And, you know, I, I've, I've got to go back and, and pat you on the back and, and, and other people who've contributed to ASHRAE because, you, you know, the, the ASHRAE standards that, that I use for uh, things like energy audits and, and commissioning, they're so thorough, they're so practical. They provide such great guidance. And, you know, I can go from the deep technical attributes to what the beneficial attributes of doing this stuff is going to be with the building owner. You know, so when the when they're crafting the owner's project requirements and you're assisting on it, you can refer right back to, you know, ASHRAE standard 55 or 62 or, or you know, the, the standards around commissioning and and you know, the stuff is there for them. It's, it's, they're really happy when there's a formalized path that, that helps them achieve what their, their big goals are. Thank you so much for mentioning that because I would say the ASHRAE standards are one of the things that ASHRAE does extremely well. And, but the big reason is they're not put together by a, a body of smart tank people. They're put together by a body made up of the building folks, the people who own them, who operate them, um, code officials, architects, engineers, contractors, lighting designers, you name it, and they're in the room if, if they have content for that particular standard. And then when they write it, it just doesn't get published. Then it goes out for public review and anybody in the world can comment on it. And the committee members have to vote on a response to every comment. 
And that that process is so thorough. When I was chair of 90.1, I called it the brutal process. But, because cause it, it really was from the committee standpoint, but that's what gave it the strength. That's what gave it the, the lasting value and impact because we had to consider comments, comments from a single engineer were as important as comments from a, a corporation that had 50,000 people at it because the committee had to vote and the committee had to respond and reach consensus within itself. What, what you, you shared, it, I really like because, it, like you, I've sat, you know, a board member with the NFRC, on USGBC, on code compliance councils, in wearing several hats. And the really cool thing about doing that, that, that uh, you know, you and I have a parallel on, is we bring a bunch of perspectives to the dialogue. You know, so we're, we're outward focusing on how can we best benefit uh, you know, the users of this standard or this code, um, you know, with its implementation, where is the, the, the best, you know, or, or the level of impact we're seeking to get to. And, uh, and it's been really fun doing that. You know, I, I've really enjoyed it over the years. And what's the best part about it? It has lasting impact on all the things that we talked about today. Yeah, I completely concur. Um, you know, I, I, I haven't asked this question before, but um, you know, you just said lasting impact, you know, give me your, your top, your top three highlights of stuff that you're really happy about, uh, accomplishing Mick. Wow. I wish you'd have given that one to me in advance. Um, <laughs> well, well, I you can... know, you can add me to the list of helping contribute with you. Sure. <laughs> um, I would say the ASHRAE 90.1 committee increasing the stringency of the standard by 30% in about two and a half years was such an extraordinary effort, but not by me, but by, but by the, um, the members on the committee. Um, they, they worked tirelessly. So, so I, for, from a, a lasting impact that is, since it becomes the law of the land in the U S that is a, a huge impact. How did how did you manage to get that incorporated within Lead Mick? Oh well, I didn't. It was the other the, the folks, the Energy and Atmosphere Technical Advisory Group, uses that as the minimum compliance as part of the the path from the prerequisite. Thanks for that. I, I was going to get there. Um, okay, so w within USGBC, the work with the technical advisory groups, the work with the lead technical committee that brings all those together and the lead steering committee to get everybody pointed in the same direction. It, it was awesome. But, but frankly, what I enjoyed the most, the group I enjoyed the most within USGBC was when I had the privilege to be on the education committee and to, so people could learn about that and learn how to use it and hear how other people have used it and gained from their experiences. So, so Daniel, I'm going to leave with two rather than try to go with a third. Well, you, you led me into to giving you your hint on the third, and that's educating over 30,000 people. Uh, to me, that's a monster impact, Mick. And what that does is emulates what you did. It gets those people to emulate what you did and share that information with others. But the only reason I can share it is because 
I either when I'm at a job site or working on a design with somebody or even instructing somebody, people ask questions and they make statements. And it, it just, it astonishes me how smart people are. And then I get to give credit for what other people told me, but I always try to give the credit back to them because it's the education so people can actually use it and implement it in projects. So thank you. Again, uh, to our audience at Build for Impact, I'm Daniel Heward, uh, lead fellow and your host for B Build for Impact. I had the extreme pleasure of dialoguing today with a dear friend who I've been super happy to contribute on, on so many things with. Mick, thank you so very, very much for sharing your your breadth of knowledge and, and stuff uh, with our audience. And hopefully we're inspiring them to, uh, to go out and, and uh, collaborate and contribute as well. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for the privilege. And I just encourage people to go out and find the information. It is there. It's useful. And it can actually be done. Because I, I'd rather save one kilowatt or one piece of paper than do all kinds of studies that say we, we saved a million of them. Because the studies don't count. It's when it's actually put into practice that counts. Well said, Mick. Thank you again, everyone, for following. Uh, do send us your questions and recommendations for what you would like to see in the future in another episode for Build for Impact.